listeners. You're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We're your hosts, Sam Collier. And Sarah Cho. And this week we'll be discussing the play The Flick by Annie Baker. Uh, the play premiered on Broadway at Playwrights Horizon in 2013. It won the Obie Award for Playwriting in 2013 and received the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2014. Um, I picked this play for this month um, because I've never read a play by Annie Baker. <laughs> uh, but it was, I feel like I just remember everyone talking about her like five mm-hmm. years ago. Um and talking about this play and I had it and I read it over the Christmas break. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was something about this play that I couldn't put down. And I mm. think that's the one I want to, that's what I would love to talk about today. Um, and just kind of getting into this, like there was something about it that I just, it's just three characters. And um, well, let me talk a little about the play. So the play is set, um, the flick is set in a uh, rundown movie theater in Massachusetts, and it follows these three underpaid movie uh, workers. So we have Avery. She, he is this young African-American in his 20s. He's like loves movies. Sam, he's in his 30s, who's been working at the movie theater like way too long and is like and is kind of annoyed and angry. But he's the one training Avery. And the third character is Rose who is in her 20s, and she's the theater's projectionist, who is also um, Sam's crush on in the, in the <laughs> mm-hmm. play. And then it's, so, it's, so it's this, like, workplace dramedy. <laughs> and both Sam and Rose are Caucasian. Caucasian. And mm-hmm. according to the script. And um, that adds another element that becomes important. Like late yeah. in the story, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's just jump right into it. First impressions. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, you can go first. <laughs> so I read this play a number of years ago, and um, I had the same experience you did, which was that I, I, it, I found it very readable. Like I just kept turning the pages. It was easy to get to know the characters. I found myself curious about what was going to happen. Um, and this time when I reread it, I had the same experience. I wouldn't say I love it though. I mean, I, I, I tend to get a little bit bored by naturalism and realism. Um, but I did find myself enjoying it more than I thought I would, at least while I was reading it. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I'll say is I, when I was teaching high school in Michigan um, and I was teaching playwriting, a playwriting unit, one of my students was looking for more, more plays to read. So I gave him this to read and he loved it. And that made me kind of see it in a new light because I, I thought, oh, you know, this it's a it's a good play. It's well written. The characters are clear. It has a, you know, well developed plot. But I didn't love it, and he really loved it and thought it was just the best play ever. And so, mm. that made me see it kind of through a young teenage writer's eyes. Um, mm-hmm. 
how much he admired her skill in creating this play. So, yeah. Yeah. When I was reading it, definitely felt like a, a time capsule um, for me because, and before recording, we talked, we sort of touched on this is that it feels like a very indie like movie. Mm-hmm. And I think what it is, is like when I was probably that age, like teenager, college age, like I was really into like indie movies, coming of age stories, like um, friends on a road trip across the country, finding themselves, you know, that kind of like those, those movies. Yeah. Um, so there's something about those themes and those movies that I was attracted to that I kind of found in this play, which is like these three very lost characters, like kind of not knowing really who themselves. And then they're all finding friendship in this movie theater in the place. Um, uh, and so, and they each have their own, like, like what's their deal? You know what I mean? Like each yeah. of them have their thing that you're, that starts uh, exposing throughout the story that you start learning more about who they are as characters. So that, um, maybe that's why I just couldn't stop. Ter- like, I wanted to know more about these characters. Like they're so human. <laughs> like, like, um, yeah. At a I level mean, it that has is- a, the thing, as you're saying they each have their own deal, I'm wondering what is Rose's deal? Cause she seems like mm. the, the least specific to me as a character. Yeah. But then I started thinking about that whole phenomenon of the manic pixie dream girl in indie mm-hmm. movies. And she, she has a little bit of that too. That her. qualities. Yeah. Those qualities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. That, you but say you know, that. who yeah. is she really? I mean, yeah. we only see her through Avery and Sam's eyes, I think. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that character, that manic pixie girl type character was around this time? Like there was more oh, of yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Don't you think? I mean, I think so many of those indie movies – Mm-hmm. especially from the early 2000s mm. the aughts or whatever we call that aughts, decade yeah. um revolve around some kind of 20 something or even late teens young woman who's like kind of quirky but not in a dangerous way <laughs> not in a way that's threatening to men um like just weird enough to be exciting Mm-hmm. but it's still ultimately like going to be their girlfriend. Although what's interesting, I guess, in this play is that the, it doesn't go that way, but no, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It does feel like a trope that, that Annie Baker is playing with. Mm-hmm. So I want to read this quote from New Yorker. Um, it was written, I believe, 2015. Um, the title is The Funny, Empathetic Genius of Annie Baker by Sarah Larson. And the quote I pulled was, Baker's extraordinary skill as an artist is to see the world accurately and to love it as it is, just as her characters love birds, a red fox, a red socks cap, honeymoon in Vegas, or Vienna fingers. She sees them in their one- every wonder without romanticizing, without criticizing, and shows us how to love them too. Um, I pulled that quote because I kind of wondered... Um, there is a sense of like, there is no, um, like she's not, she's not 
being critical about it, like about, mm-hmm. um, you know, rundown movie theater. I mean, there there are like some themes that sort of organically kind of bubble up and appear in the play, but it's not like it's not like a social justice play. You know what I mean? Like it's not yeah. anything like any kind of extreme thing. But I was curious, like, was there anything about the characters that you kind of agree, like, based on what Sarah Larson says, like, you feel like there's nothing romantic or criticizing or. Yeah. I I do think Mm -hmm. um, she's, she's really trying to show us these full human beings and not putting them into categories that are easily Mm -hmm. dismissed or understood. Um, I, 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 but I, I'm not totally sure that she gets there with Rose. I mean, now that I'm thinking mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. it, I think Avery and Sam are more clearly developed and more specific than and complete than Rose is. Um, but I do one thing I do like about the play is how I mean they are all kind of. Um, they all have flaws. They all have faults. Um, mm-hmm. But no, but nobody is like disposable, you know. Mm. Um, nobody is like um, she doesn't write anybody off. Yeah, but maybe I mean the real tragedy is that Avery loses his job because. Sam and mm-hmm. Rose are so <laughs> like selfish. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, let's. I want to talk about that. Um, so I love what you said that there's nothing that's disposable because, she, like, every moment, um, which is kind of builds one after the other. Mm-hmm. And, but right before, so in act one, before this moment, moment where there's this moment of called the dinner money and Sam and Rose kind of get, let uh, Avery, who's a new employee to like, this is what we do. We're going to take 10% of the cash of the night, like from the register. We kind of like, and it's, you know, we're underpaid, blah, blah, blah. We're just we feel like, right. It was kind of a thing that was passed on to us from the previous employees that were here and left. So we just kind of take some money and Avery was completely against it because yeah. one, he's, he's like, Oh, I'm, you know, black and they're going to, if, if there's any, if I, we get caught, I'll get in trouble. I'll be the one getting in trouble. Um, and, and so he kind does of sets say, it he's just like, I don't want to be part of it. He doesn't say exactly. you have to stop doing it. He just says, don't include me in this, right. and, which they refuse not to. Yeah. Include. Like, they're like you have to participate. Cause yeah. And I think this is like, they feel, they don't want to feel bad about it. Right. They don't want to be like. Uh, realizing like, oh, we're doing this bad thing and there's one person that's not doing the bad thing, but we should do all this bad thing together so feel less bad. <laughs> right. Um, and then so that happens early on. And I think that was a moment in for me in the play. Before then, it was kind of a lot of character building. We're just like getting to the language, like how these characters talk and what they think and feel. And then it was this actual very active moment mm-hmm. where, okay, because we sat in this scene, I'm like, I don't know how it's going to play out, but it's going to play out. Like, but I'm predicting he will lose his job because <laughs> it's like, you're right. You can't just have to create this moment and like 
Like somehow he's going to take the fall for this. Yeah. And so I wasn't anticipating it, but I knew it was going to come soon. But when it happened in act two, um, there was so much weight in this moment and in how it happened. Like I thought like, I like in my way, I was like predicting, expecting like he would get in trouble the way we would, he would get in trouble. But the fact that he just, I mean, he loses his job, but like he, leaves a job you know yeah and then and then there's a scene there's kind of a heartfelt scene at the end when he kind of comes back and they're kind of different people except he's kind of a different person Avery has become a different person when he comes back but I feel like Sam didn't change like yeah Avery has that whole thing about how he's just not gonna trust anybody anymore <laughs> mm-hmm, right faith in people and yeah. I mean and he's the youngest one out of all yeah, three I think 20, yeah yeah but so I think I just, what's so yeah. interesting about the way they're constructed is that both Rose and Sam see Avery as having more opportunities ahead of him because he's in college and his dad is a professor. And so they see – they in their minds, like he's just doing this job temporarily as a college student and is going to go on to have a very successful career. And they see themselves mm, as like right. stuck. Um, which, I mean, the other thing about this play that I think is so important is that it, unlike a lot of those indie movies, it really feels like a post-2008 Great Recession play. You know, it's mm. like it, it's in the world of, you know, towns where all the small businesses just disappeared or people's yeah. Yeah. savings evaporated and um people lost their houses and it just feels like it's of that mm-hmm. world in a way that like i don't know why but my go-to indie movie that's in my mind right now is garden state <laughs> <laughs> i mean garden state was like the yeah i feel like that's such a great i mean garden state when it came out it was just everyone was a lot of comparisons was happening with to garden state for sure but like that was even though it was kind of about being aimless and young and not knowing what you're going to do with your life, it still Mm -hmm. was buying into the American dream in a way that like, Mm. once you figure it out, you're going to have a house in the suburbs and like a good job. (laughs) I think based on what I remember, I I only saw it one time, but yeah. And there's something tragic about in the flick that especially Sam, like he's the oldest one and he hasn't achieved those things. Right. Yeah. And there's just something very like tragic about his character that um and yeah, like he was so angry, you know, Rose is a projectionist and he wants like that's in this world is a promotion and mm-hmm. he hasn't even been promoted mm-hmm. to projectionist at all yet. Um and then the fact that when Avery had like when or Rose is like, Yeah, maybe I could show you how to project like Sam was so upset. Like, how could you show him before me? And I've been right. here longer than him. There's in this very like microscopic way of looking at the workplace is like the dynamic, even between the three, it's like there. Right. But then the ultimate irony is that that job disappears with the move to mm. digital. Like it doesn't even matter right. anymore because all you're going to do is turn on a button and, you know, that's also a metaphor for our national economy changing in the first 
two decades of the 21st century, which is that all of these jobs are going away and not coming back. And so in this movie theater, they don't need a projectionist anymore once they go to digital. Right. Yeah. And then at the end, Avery comes back uh, because Sam was like, oh, yeah, the projection is still there. And then Avery comes back to take that projection um, or projector to start his own movie theater. Like, I want to start my own. It's going to be where real movie lovers could enjoy film. um, (laughs) Right. To, like, preserve this ancient tradition, you know, like, which is kind of a sweet – and um but also just yeah again it was like really here like as we're saying it right it's like it's very simple like it's, it's so not simple. complex it's not complex of like the story where it's going and um but i think what is really cool what annie baker is doing was she took the very specificities in this movie theater everything and like utilized it and mm-hmm. didn't you know there was no access to access to anything it was just it's all here and and it's like it, it's not political but it, there are moments where you, you I couldn't help but think what you just said like a recession during this time and what was going on with small businesses and mm-hmm. um, so it's just like it's yeah it's but like I'm still a little bit puzzled about why it won the Pulitzer Prize I don't know either <laughs> <laughs> I mean I would like I mean I um yeah, I don't. I honestly don't know. I don't know who the readers are or like what was going on at the time. But I mean, I do think there was this kind of fetishization. I don't. I can never say this word right. Fetishization, something like that, of like working class. Like, oh, there are real people working in a movie theater, and like we get to see a play that's mm-hmm. just about their lives. Um, especially during that couple of years after the economic collapse where, where they're yeah. where you know just like this idea of like mm-hmm. um i don't know i don't know what I, I'm I, I think I, I think i see what you're saying especially i'm thinking like new york theater exactly broadway here are like here we are coastally right. looking at this kind of like uh this sim- like small town <laughs> yeah like um, a window into lives that we feel we should be able to relate to even though we know nothing about like yeah that's interesting yeah but maybe that's uh, too cynical of me i mean it's 2021 2020 maybe this is a time <laughs> to be i mean i no, think there was something really groundbreaking about just at the most fundamental level, seeing a stage that was just a bunch of rows of audience chairs, you know, mm-hmm. and like, mm-hmm. I I wish I could see, I could have seen a first production of this. Didn't we read that people walked out? Yeah. So I, I found this interesting fact or like what happened. So, so I read this play and it, you, it, it reads really quickly. Like what? I want to say what it took me like an hour and a half, two hours to read the whole thing. Um, so this is what I found. So the sh- the show when it was produced, it was running three hours, and the show had received complaints regarding its length. <laughs> While recognizing dissonance, Playwrights Horizon artistic director Tim Semper 
sent a letter to some subscribers acknowledging the concern, but finding it outweighed by the praise of others. He concluded there was no need to edit the play down. Um, and so I think I was like looking at that. I was like, oh, well, okay. I went back and looked at stage directions, and a lot of it is like them cleaning. You right. Know how long they're cleaning for? Right. Or like walking and these around. Long periods of silence. Exactly. Um, which, I mean, that I feel like at the time, like that's groundbreaking. Yeah, <laughs> like, I agree, and I think maybe that's part of what we're missing by just reading it on the page. Yeah. That I mean, was, imagine like three hours of like. I, I'm finding it hard to imagine three hours of this play, except if there's a lot of cleaning. <laughs> I mean, right. Okay. So, and I think there's something about what you just said, though, is like looking like very natural. Like this is like as close to real, like like realism could, yeah. they could get, like watching other people. And then even like because the, the language, there, it is so – the cadence and like it's so much like a person talking. Yeah, you, they like she Annie Baker really captured um, the language, but yeah, it's you're watching these three basically very human, like almost like watching humans. It's like a documentary. I want to say it's like a documentary where you're like watching them live their life, right? And, and it's them. kind of the moments between the feature presentation where they're just passing the time, right? I mean, they're like. Mm-hmm. They're cleaning the theater for the next group of people to come see the actual show. Only that's the part that we get to see is the cleaning. I mean, I think there is something really interesting that she's exploring. Mm -hmm. But I also, I think because I had read a a lot about this play before I ever got around to reading the play itself, Mm -hmm. I had really high expectations and I, I just think there's more to it. That there's maybe more she could have explored. Mm. <laughs> Says me, Sam, about a Pulitzer Prize winning play. <laughs> yeah, there's – I. now that you say that, it makes me think that she does have some sort of a, a command for time then. Like yeah. That she oh, is yeah. really trying to play with time and like the time right between the feature presentation – like workers coming in cleaning up before the movie starts getting things ready movie starts they're waiting for it to be over what's going on there and then um cleaning afterwards like i it's like she understands the the cycle of like what that workplace schedule is yeah and she's like working day by day or however long um the days are so well and you um, imagine you're as you're sitting watching this you're in an audience surrounded by other audience members and you're kind of seeing like what would happen before you got there and after you left even though you're in a in a theater and you're watching a movie theater um i do feel like there's just something about that experience that we can't quite access since we're not seeing it live like you're the you're part of the audience, the missing invisible audience. Do you know what I'm saying? I think so. Yeah. Like you're looking at all these empty chairs, mm-hmm. but you yourself are sitting among other people in a full audience. That might just be really cool. Mm. 
Um, and I can see why <laughs> fussy elder subscribers would be <laughs> perturbed <laughs> about this play. It also makes me think, um, like, what was going on in New York around this time, like the art scene? Like, mm. I, it makes me think, because this was written, so what, 2014? 2012, it was probably first written. 2013. Mm -hmm. um, and I remembered around that time there was a documentary that came out. Um, I forgot her name. But she was this, like, New York artist. Uh, they did, like, a whole gallery of her work. And she was – I don't know if you've probably seen – like, you read about it. But she was, like, this artist who, like, sat on the, the table, like, sat in a chair. And then you just sit in front of her. <laughs> and you just stare at each other for, like, two minutes. And then she, like – and then people had like such weird visceral reactions of doing that with her, like sitting there and looking at each other for like a minute or two. Oh, wow. I'm trying to remember. Now it's like kicking, I'm kicking my butt for not remembering this name of the artist. But um, I mean, now that documentary was so big and the artist was so big. Now it's become like satirized where people are making fun mm. of this. Like this New Yorker is being like, oh my God, I looked at her in the eye and I cried, you know, like, <laughs> but I'm just saying like, there, like, I don't know what was going on in the New York, the art scene at this time where this like time sitting, looking, experiencing, you know, it's like, it just all kind of like feels like that was a like thing. People were it was like a thing. It could have been, yeah, exploring. it could be, like, yeah. Um, that could have made an impact for this play, like, or the play had an impact because of what was going on at the time or what the people were. It kind of sounds like what you're saying is nobody would write this play right now in the year 2021. I honestly don't know. Maybe people could. Because people probably miss the movie theater. So like, <laughs> remember the oh movie theater was set in dark movie theater that's like falling apart. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I could still see that this being written. I mean, it still relevant. I felt like there were some mm -hmm. moments I just felt so relevant today. Like, are movie theaters going to come back? <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, one thing yeah. I really like. So the scene where Avery is talking to his therapist on the phone. Um, it's just a monologue. It's just a scene that the whole scene is a monologue. And I really like using that when I'm teaching playwriting. Mm. Um, it's a good monologue for young students because it shows, it can show you how you can um, reveal so much about a character just by what they talk about. So he has this dream about um, like, the one movie he ever really loved is somehow supposed to represent him. And he's thinking about all these different movies. And so it's easy for students to see how, Oh, just by having a character talk about something a lot and different examples of that thing, you can see what they're passionate about. Um, yeah. And I like the six yeah. degrees of separation game that they play. Oh yeah. That's a good one. And kind of remarkable. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I just remember the title of this movie was The Artist is Present. And who's the artist? When you say you just remember, do you mean you actually just found it online? <laughs> I had to like quickly Google. <laughs> but then I, I remembered it. Then I just wanted to make sure I got the right title. Mm -hmm. so I was like, The okay. Artist is Present. 
But let me look at this. Marina. Marina Abramovic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't tell her. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's done like a number of performances. Performance art. Like that's like her that. thing. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So it was like around the, and it was this documentary was 2012. So around this time, 2012, theater or like the art scene in New York is like this, this type of art, performance art type thing. That was, I feel like it was, you know, like picking people up. were thinking about sitting and waiting. Mm-hmm. That's a good, I think that's a really good thesis um, that you have there. And then now I think, now it makes me think like, I wonder if this now, this is what inspired the artist's presence inspired those, all these like pop-ups, <laughs> art gallery stuff that people were, you know what I'm talking mm, about? Yeah. But I also think that she was working within like a long tradition of that kind of performance art. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, but, the, but the thing you're saying about kind of experimenting with time or kind of sitting and watching something that doesn't change very much. <laughs> um, mm. I wonder what other plays were being written around... 2012. Listeners, um, we want to know if you have read any other plays that feel similar to the flick. And, yeah. And what you think about the flick and what you think about this idea of long periods of time in which there's not a lot of talking and how that translates into the play on the page when you read it. Because I do feel like I'm not, I'm just not accessing the full experience mm. when I read it. I mean, yeah. which is true of every play, but in this one, it feels particularly obvious. Now I kind of want to know if people are out there who are passionate about this. Yeah, like tell us <laughs> oh if you goodness. love the flick. Yeah. yeah. Do you love the flick? Do you love this idea of the playwright having this kind of command of forcing you to sit there <laughs> and like really take in the silence. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm curious. Or maybe passionately hate it. Passionately love it. Is there a passion about this? I want to know. Tell us your passion. Yeah. Tell Sarah, us. would you ever write a play where there's just like, extended silence with people doing something in silence what would they be doing <laughs> it's so funny because now i'm thinking when you write and you go silence in the action, <laughs> you know, the action. silence like what does that really mean <laughs> yeah um because i'm just one a little moment a breather for the the actress just like a little take a little break here just just sit in the silence for a bit but now i'm like thinking um what does the silent really mean? Because I know like actors, they take those moments because I've taken one acting mm -hmm. class. And so I guess I'm an expert. You are. They, no, I'm not. <laughs> but they, they take those opportunities, the silences to now like change motivation or change. Yeah. To do a lot of acting. Do a lot of acting. <laughs> That's what actors do. But, but I, yeah, I'm thinking like the, 
what's the power behind it or maybe the lack of. I don't know. Um, you know, it's making me think of one of my favorite moments ever in a play was um, – do you remember, I think it was Teresa Jacobassi's play in Festival One Year where it was in a motel lobby and somebody was popping popcorn in a microwave and there were like two minutes of silence on stage while these characters just watched the microwave. Do you remember this? Mm, yeah, vaguely. It felt yeah, like uh, yeah. such a, Ariel um, directed it. And it felt like such an exciting moment on stage just to have – I mean, first there was this silence as the audience was like, how long is this actually going to go on for? And then there was a little bit of laughter. And then there was a little more laughter and a little more laughter. And, like, the microwave just kept going and the characters just stood there awkwardly. Not awkwardly because of the actors, but awkwardly because within the story, the characters were feeling awkward. and. Um, I just loved that Ariel let that moment be a full – well, it felt like two minutes. I don't know how long it was, but a full thing. However long to pop the yeah. popcorn. Yeah, to pop the popcorn. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and then I think that's something that you could have an experience in theater versus movie. Like you, live right. audience. Right. I mean, did we smell the popcorn? Could we smell it? Probably. Probably. Like – to watch and be in that time, real time. With them, yeah. With them experiencing. Um, right. You can't have a, mo a moment like that yeah. in a film because it has to be live. It only works if you're literally in that moment with the characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something about <laughs> like a, a mundane activity like that, which, which the flick had a lot of these like mundane mm -hmm. moments. But feeling like as an audience, you're there experiencing watching it and you're like, you're, I mean, like now that you say that, I'm sure I was like kind of like fidgety because like, because I like, what's <laughs> happening? I get fidgety yeah. a lot. And so like that was a theatrical experience for me because I was like, what's happening in my brain? Mm -hmm. um, hmm. Something a lot to think about here. Yeah. So are you saying that this year I should turn in a play with one word, like 90 pages, <laughs> just one word, and then and silence, the rest silence, is just silence, like silence. people doing things in silence. And I'm you sold. can call it pandemic because, like, that's my life. I don't talk to anybody because I live alone. Live alone. Conduct my days in silence. Except, I honestly, I do talk to myself a lot. I would love to know if there's anyone out there that submitted a play like this. <laughs> like it's just 90 pages of all action, no words, and then like at the end. So if you word. had one word in 90 pages, you would save it for the very last page. Oh, yeah. And then blackout, end of play. <laughs> what that, I'm trying to think of what that one word would be because like it has to be impactful and like a biggest takeaway after 90 minutes of like all like action. Um, How about Eureka? <laughs> Eureka. <laughs> what is this, 1935? <laughs> how, how 
about um oh it's only one word yeah like one word okay okay the phone rings the person answers Mm -hmm. the phone and says hello and then that's the end no not the phone i see there's a little mystery though there's a little mystery i like that i don't (laughs) know if that's the right word it's not mysterious enough though yeah yeah well i'll think about this all day today so Listeners, thanks for listening to us. <laughs> now, no, let's just now be silent. <laughs> okay, all right, goodbye. All right, that's good. Should we that's do good. our glistens? Yeah, sorry, glistens. All right. Okay. All right. I am reading this book. Um, uh, it's called The Intuitionist, and it's, like, from the 90s. So talk about a time capsule. Um, it's by Coulson Whitehead. I just started it, and it's about this, like, society of elevator repair – no, elevator inspectors, people who inspect mm-hmm. elevators. It is kind of like this, from what I can tell so far, this, like, parallel universe in which elevator inspectors are very important and um, – powerful Mm -hmm. in society and there are different there I think there are different there's like two warring factions of elevator inspectors Mm -hmm. um and intuitionists are ones that just kind of sense what's wrong with the elevator hmm Anyway, it's fascinating. If anybody out there has read this book, I would love to talk to you about it. I'm not very wait, far into it yet, but wait, what's it called again? The Intuitionist. It's by the Colson intu- Whitehead. Intuitionist. Oh, yeah. by Colston Whitehead. Oh, I see. It's very hmm. strange, and it's like really the writing is really dense. Um, it takes me a while to parse each sentence in a way that I'm. I'm kind of having to kick my brain into a higher gear because I'm not used to reading. Mm. Like lately, at least, I haven't been reading such dense writing. So that's kind of enjoyable. Um, wow. Okay. Intuition. But also, okay. like the 90s were actually a really long time ago. <laughs> I mean, really, like when – okay, so you were watching The O.C., which I guess that's not from the 90s, but – it's uh-huh. just so strange to think about within our lives. There was this time period before the internet really changed our entire society. Like that was during our lifetime, the nineties. Mm. And yet life was so different then. I mean, it was completely different. <sighs> kind of miss it. <laughs> I was young and free. I didn't worry about a single thing. Uh Bring take me back. Um, okay. What's your glisten? My glisten is this LA Times article about area codes and <laughs> people's identity what? about area codes. It's very interesting. So, for the longest time in California, from like from Mexico Mexico to like Bakersfield. Uh, the area code was the area code was two one three. Where's right? Bakersfield? Bakersfield is like about mm, I want to say two hours 
northeast of LA. Okay. So that's um, pretty far from Mexico. It's pretty to far. But like, but for the longest time, 213 was the area code, especially for LA. Like LA was that was the original. And then um the state started reconfiguring the counties and stuff, and then cell phones being introduced. So now you have like 805, which is like the Santa Barbara, like north um of LA um, and then all these different area codes. So I, I didn't think much about area codes, but then before reading this article, I remembered um, when I encounter people like, they're like, Hey, what's your number? And I give them my number. It's two, one, three, four, zero, seven. I'm not going to finish the rest, but it's <laughs> a two, one, three. And then they would say, <laughs> and they would tell me, Oh, 213. Wow. You're like, you've been around here for a while. Like that's an OG number. Like that's, oh. you know, and I didn't think much about it. Um, Nick's area code is 310. Cause he moved to LA about 10 years ago. And that, and that, and, and then each area code is sort of like, there's an, like, uh, like an a identity attached. About when a you arrived. Stamp. Right. Wow. But also when you arrived, but like also kind of like an identity, like for me, 213 feels like and I this is before reading it, but I had the my connection to the two one three Erica was like, like, like this is like, like real LA number, like this is the real like LA native, um, wow, for, like um like the people who work and live here, like that feels like the number, and then in the article describing the area code for three one zero is which was Nick's, but in, in the when he moved to LA, he lived on like the West side first. This is when it was like when Santa Monica was affordable, but, and, and now that identity attached to three one zero area code is more like elitist wealthy number because of like, because it's the West side. And so I, it was just funny, like how, um, people have this like identity attached to the area codes and which is really interesting and funny. My brother's area code, my brother and my sister, has Santa Barbara when we moved when we left LA and they had cell phones. Mm-hmm. Um, they got their first cell phones when we were living in Santa Barbara when we were kids or teenagers, and so they have eight hundred five. And my brother has like this attachment to that eight hundred five too. Like, oh, Santa Barbara, like that's my child, like SB, you know. And so wow, this is funny, so like, fascinating. I know that was so fun. And in, in LA Times, this whole um, and different area codes kind of having identity and the symbol bet- attached to it so yeah i don't know i was like well that's very interesting and also what's interesting so the city so la it was 213 manhattan like new york was 212 mm. and then chicago is like what i think like 231 or something like that mm. and it's like if you have there, there's a sense of like if you have those area codes there's a sense of um not pride i don't know what it is but like because those three numbers are at the top of your phone and it's the quickest to get to. So you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy. Okay, well, I have a 202 number because that's what DC is. And yeah, I do not like, feel any pride about being at the top of the keypad. Because, but yeah, but because it's top, there's like, you get to the number quicker. It's like, you're, you're not, you know, like, oh, I'm going to the bottom of the keypad to reach the other number. Like, there's a, so there's a sense of like, uh, I don't know, like elite about that's <laughs> so silly. It's so silly. I know, but then there. Do they, you feel proud of your area code? I mean, when I hear people's other area codes, I'm like, 
because nobody gives out the two and three area codes anymore. Rarely, very rarely. Like that's <laughs> the area code. So I'm like, I'm the real LA. You're not the real LA. <laughs> I guess I've just lived for like 10 years in places where my area code does not match the local area code. And I find nothing more annoying than – this was very common in Michigan. People just give out phone numbers without the area code. And I was just like, what are you doing? A phone number is 10 digits. Why are you giving me these seven digits? Oh. But they just expect everyone to be from Michigan and have a Michigan number, area yeah. code. Yeah. yeah. Huh. But and then a little bit that happens in Maine too. Mm. Yeah, I just, I don't know. This is very fascinating, the attachment too. And then there's a thing, like you probably didn't think about it until, I don't know, like cell phones and more people were getting numbers. Yeah. and Well, except I remember, you know, growing up because I had friends who were in Maryland and Virginia. And so you had to know all three of those area codes, mm, which are all see. different. But I mean, nobody memorizes phone numbers anymore. That's so true. It is so bad. Like I keep, because <laughs> I always like put myself in the scenarios in my brain. Like if I go lost or missing, I or know. like if I'm <laughs> middle of nowhere, who do I call? And I don't have a cell phone on me. And I'm trying to remember Nick's number, and it's his number is so hard to memorize. Like I can't remember <laughs> at all. Like it's so hard. Oh my God. Just like get a tattooed on the bottom of your foot. <sighs> I mean, if that what comes to it, like down to it, <laughs> that I have to do that, that perhaps I should. <laughs> I know it's so bad, and I think Nick knows my number because it's pretty easy. I'm not gonna say it, but it's pretty easy. <laughs> but my his number, like it's like numbers that has no, I can't connect to it at all. I don't know. Anyways, that is my glisten. People's <laughs> attachment to area codes, finding identity in area codes and their numbers. So, so listeners, tell us your thoughts about. The flick, area codes, elevators, um, and anything else that's on your mind. Where do you find your identity? Please tell us. Or your therapist, because <laughs> your therapist is a good person to talk to. That. Okay. All Bye. right. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Baby. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com, and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening.